This week on Down the Line, we're joined by KJHK Radio's Jackson Schneider to talk March Madness. We'll wrap up the MLB free agency frenzy and discuss how the Cleveland Browns are no longer laughingstock in the NFL. All that and more on Down the Line. The run will score, the ball will bounce for a single, and the Minnesota Twins are the champions of the world. Here's Ben here's the throw, he scores, we go to a seven. Touchdown, Dante Hall, 92 yards, and they're going crazy. Fire to the right side, on my dick, stay oh above, my God, oh, oh my God, oh my God, 30, no And welcome into the first ever episode of the Down the Line podcast. I'm your host, Jack Dino, joined by my co-host, Jack Johnson. Not the musician, but the elite sports mind nonetheless. And today, a special guest. We are joined by KJHK Radio's Jackson Schneider, uh, another elite sports mind of his own. And uh, Jackson, you're filling out your March Madness bracket already, huh? Um, kind of. I like to do like a rough draft and then I go back through and completely change it like twice and then I'll probably put something online. I I consider it unofficial until it's online because, you know, that's where it's recorded. I could just make a new one any other time, but this is hard. I don't know if you know that, but it's it's really hard to predict these kinds of things. Well, it's it's uh it's I mean, that's why they've never ever had a perfect bracket. I don't Nope. Perfect bracket, I don't believe, ever in the history of... There's been there's been some rumors that there has been, but it's just been the paper ones, obviously. So, so. Un- un- Unofficially. Yeah, no. See, it's not official unless exactly. it's online. I've changed my answers a couple times. Well, speaking of uh, imperfect things, uh, tonight's selection show was, uh, at least by, to put it nicely, controversial in the fact that pretty much everyone hated it. I completely agree. I don't understand the need to change the format of it. I really want to know who was the guy that that gave this idea that let's let's announce the teams first and then let's announce them again, but this time with the seating. I don't get why you wouldn't try to kill two birds with one stone like they've done always and announce the teams and then give the seating. And to also add on that the sound was off. They would announce the, the teams after they'd been shown for a good five seconds and then they'd cut to the team and the gymnasium or wherever they were and the the reaction was always delayed. It took like three or four seconds for them to realize they were up on the screen. So if you weren't watching the selection show earlier this evening on TBS, uh, the selection committee or selection show was kind of changed. Instead of releasing the bracket by region and having the, the teams appear by region, they decided to list all 68 alphabetically at the very beginning of the show and then going back uh, 20 minutes later and then releasing the bracket but as you were saying jack it killed pretty much any and all excitement or anticipation and suspense that was involved with selection sunday and i mean they managed to ruin one of the most like simple like holy sports events on television they they really did because if if you're a bubble team that let's let's say you're Arizona State. So since they released it alphabetically, you didn't have to wait. You were the first name that popped up. You're like, oh, I guess we're in now. 
And then if your team's like Xavier, like you know you're going to be in, but you still have to wait 20 minutes before they pop your logo on the screen. Like why why was this a thing? Honestly, like the the fun in this is seeding everything out and then the bubble teams getting added in later so that you know there's actual surprise and you find out immediately where you're at in the bracket. Well, to me, the the way this strikes me is Whoever the executives are at, at Turner Sports are or, or Turner Television, what this tells me is they're not college basketball fans because I can't. I, I was I was literally I was scrolling through Twitter for an hour today trying to find one person say that they enjoyed how the selection show was formatted, and I couldn't find one. And, and honestly, I if for whatever reason they decided to keep this format moving forward, I mean they will seriously ruin a great tradition of college hoops because, you know, like Jackson said, there's no fun in in finding out, you know, that you're into the tournament if you're a bubble team in the first 30 seconds of the show. And as you pointed out, Jack, the, the audio was off, not just on the reactions, but watching, I call him Greg Gumball, but Greg Gumball <laughs> sit there on, on your television and his lips are moving and it's nothing like what he's saying. And, and that just irked me. At first I thought it was my cable connection and then I kept watching and realized that whoever was running the show just was not doing their job correctly well I think then also what I saw and this really irritated me the first time they would do one of the regions I think it was it was they started with I think was it the south region and there was Ernie Johnson was over there and Virginia immediately as the board comes on obviously appears first and they're looking down at their papers and all that and he goes in we're going to start things off with the one seed in the South out of the ACC, Virginia. And it had already been 10 seconds that we've seen Virginia up there. Then while he's saying that, the 16 seed pops up. So then he's already behind schedule. And they just kept going. And for some reason, I was like, how are they not slowing this down a little bit? They'd pop up each team while he was describing the team that they had just shown prior to that. It just was it was unbelievable how everything was constructed. And I don't know how somebody and I was also on TBS. Why why did it have to go to TBS instead of CBS? I think uh, I think not to cut you off there, but I think they're trying really hard to rotate their their channels because you know that it rotates TBS, CBS, TNT, and True TV for like the national championship game and all four of those will have games at the same time. Um during the tournament, so they're trying to get more of those ratings to different uh, channels for because no one watches True TV normally. Yeah, exactly. I do. Like, I, I'm I'm <laughs> fairly certain that March Madness and now the Selection Show and occasionally the National Championship are like part of what keeps True TV afloat. You know, all those viewers on that one to two occasion probably keeps them alive. So they probably have to rotate it around. And even though. This selection so show was garbage. People still watched it. There were millions of people that still tuned in. And all things considered, even though it sucked, like people are talking about them. So there could have been a way, though. I think it could have been saved almost. Um, I think one of the biggest things is the alphabetical order kind of took away the excitement. If they wanted to keep the excitement, they could have just announced the teams in no particular order. And then you wouldn't have known, like, I guarantee you there were the, like, Baylor was sitting there and they were like, well, when are we, okay, there's the bees. We should be coming up here at some point. And they missed over when it was like, well, maybe, you know, they couldn't be back in there. And then they had to watch everybody else in alphabetical order be announced. There wasn't the excitement of, oh, maybe we could get it later. It was like, once they moved on to the seas, it was over for them. And they basically had to watch everybody else be announced and then seated. It was just, it was poorly done. And 
every way they possibly could have done it. Well, regardless of how it was presented, we now know all 68 teams that are included and the countless others that are not. So let's kind of dive right into it with uh, at least kind of our opinions on some of the biggest snubs and biggest surprises because there were definitely a handful of teams that I think the general consensus were that they were going to sneak in with a bid uh, to dance, and uh, frankly they were kind of just kind of smoked out of the water. Well, there were a few bid stealers in the last two days, specifically uh, this morning with Davidson uh, beating out Rhode Island in the Atlantic 10 Conference Championship game, and I think that that kind of threw a wrench in a couple of different teams' plans, uh, specifically teams like uh, Oklahoma State, Baylor, Louisville, those guys, where they were right on the the edge, you know, and, and anything could have changed that, and I think that that was one of the games that did, and I'm really, really surprised that Louisville got left out of the tournament. I mean, there was, I mean, I would say three or four teams that I for sure, you know, we were talking before the show, Jack, of of just a couple teams that we definitely thought could be in over a Syracuse or, you know, over even Oklahoma as, as much as, as much as this country loves Trey Young and all the networks love chatting about him. It's just Oklahoma to me is not a tournament team. And, you know, that was one of my biggest surprises. And then to see the teams that not, they essentially took spots from a team like Notre Dame, um, you know, middle Tennessee, some, you know, teams like that. Well, I think that the problem with why their statement of saying, you know, I heard some people say they want to see Trey Young in March madness, but I feel like they've almost exhausted Trey Young from earlier in the season. You know, he got all this publicity. Everybody was shocked that this freshman was scoring 40 points. He was scoring 48 night in and night out. And then when he started, when people started to see that he was scoring still 26, but he'd shoot 9 of 26 from the field, you know, it wasn't as exciting to watch anymore. Not to mention Oklahoma is not a very well-put-together team. Their defense isn't good at all. They may score a lot, but they can't stop anybody. Um it basically the reason that I thought Oklahoma State would jump over them is because if you look at the last meeting Kansas and Oklahoma had, they absolutely blew them out of the water. And every single game, I mean, you could argue that the Big 12 tournament game with Oklahoma State and Kansas, that Oklahoma State kind of showed that what most people expected Kansas for them to do. But for the entire season, Oklahoma State competed very well with the champions of the league in Kansas, but. I just don't understand how people would say, I want to watch Trey Young in the tournament when we've basically seen him play this entire year and he's on a complete digression of play going into this tournament. Oklahoma has zero momentum. They just lost to Oklahoma State, and they have 13 losses. Oklahoma State had 14 losses. You can't tell me that one more loss is what kept Oklahoma State out, and they also had two big wins to their resume in Kansas. They beat Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is on a stretch. I don't know the exact numbers, but they had lost, uh, I think, maybe 10 of 15 of their final games or something in that sort of category. But I don't know how they could make it in. And then also USC got snubbed. They finished uh, runner-up in the tournament, I think, in the Pac-12 tournament. And Arizona State finished ninth in the Pac-12. And USC finished second, I believe. And they still did not make it into this tournament. I don't know how you can put Arizona State in that category. I think USC rightfully are in that position to be at least in the playing game ahead of Arizona State. Yeah, I, I think so too. As much like Oklahoma, Arizona State had a very similar collapse. But for Arizona State, theirs came earlier. 
Arizona State started off Pac-12 play 0-5. At least for Oklahoma, they contended in the Big 12 up until about the second go-round in the round robin. That's where teams started to figure out Trey, Trey Young and how to stop them and how to attack their defense. But or for Arizona State, I don't know what it was, but as soon as they hit conference play, they just decided that they weren't a good team anymore. We saw them go and beat uh, Xavier by like 20 points early in this early in the season they beat Kansas State in the same tournament then like 2 weeks later come into Allen Fieldhouse and get a double digit win at Kansas and then a week and a half later they're just non-existent so i i don't know how you can take teams that are trending downward that strongly and leave them out um against teams like St. Mary's now they're in a bad conference that's completely understandable but when you lose five games all year and two of them are to Gonzaga or to BYU who played great in the conference tournament and you've beaten Gonzaga you've beaten plenty of other quality teams just getting penalized because of the conference that you're in I think that that's really unfortunate and that team a team like St. Mary's got left out for just Trey Holder well and the the thing that also bothers me is for the you know the last few seasons we've seen kind of the the RPI statistic really become a, a, a kind of a, a strong indication of whether the committee would favor a team or not. But for me, this bracket also kind of goes against everything that the RPI has kind of justified in the in the past few seasons because. You know, sure, you can make a case for for Sir- a team like Syracuse being in because you know they finish, you know, forty fifth, uh, you know, in RPI rankings. But then there's three, four, I think five other teams that finished higher than them uh, in RPI that were not even the first four out, or 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 teams that were even farther down that list. And, and there's obviously a lot more than just RPI that that goes into tournament seeding and, and, and bids and such. But for me. Just th- this, this was one of the most surprising kind of, you know, pool of 68 releases that I can remember, at least from my, my personal recent memory. I have a somewhat of a hot take here on some of the seedings now, and the people that actually made it into the tournament. Here. The Kansas Jayhawks opponent, Penn, should not have been a 16 seed in this tournament. I think they could have possibly been a 15 or even maybe a 14 seed if they were lucky. If I had to ask you a question here, what is Kansas's biggest strength that they've had over the last couple games? Well, I think it's I think I know what you're getting at here and I think that it's their three-point shooting. The Penn Quakers, I think that's their mascot, the Penn yes. Quakers, yeah, Quakers. The Quakers are ranked second in the nation in three-point field goal percentage. They hold teams to under 30% at exactly 28% shooting. Now, they're big men. They don't start a guy over 6'8". Their tallest guy is 6'8 on the floor. So, obviously, if Kansas starts Azubuki, if he's healthy, you should look to go inside. However, with that being said, Penn could have the advantage on the offensive side of attacking Azubuki from the outside. As we know, Azubuki cannot play at all along the perimeter. And I'm sure I haven't looked completely into their scouting report. I don't know how much I will because mainly 16 seeds aren't going to fare well against any one seed. But they probably have a couple guys who are 6'7 and 6'8 who can shoot the three that Azubuki simply can't guard. And if he comes out there, they can go right around him and get him into foul trouble. 
And according, actually right here, I found a tweet by Seth Davis, and he said, I would never pick a 16 seed to beat a one, but if ever there were a 16 seed that could pull off a miracle, it's Penn. Interesting. It's really interesting. And I also think that this might play into whether or not Yudoka Azubuki plays for Kansas because if he's not fully healthy and he's a liability in the matchup, even if he is healthy, maybe Kansas just holds him out anyway because I think you have to like Silvio DeSosa and Mitch Lightfoot defending post players that can stretch the floor out a lot better than having Yudoka Azubuki out there and risk further injuring himself and or impeding Kansas's def- defense anyways. So you might be able to just play without him and play matchups. And honestly, I don't think that there are very many uh, pin defenders that will be able to handle Silvio DeSosa on the inside because he is a, a, a sleeker, smaller version of Yudoka Azabuki. But we've seen him progress into a very viable offensive option for Kansas over the last three games. I mean, and uh, I, I got to tell you, going into that West Virginia game, I had no idea and I had no expectations that Silvio de Sosa would be able to handle Kanate. And not only did he handle Kanate, he really didn't back out, back down to any sort of intimidation Kanate tried. As you could see at the end of the half, uh, Kanate sort of got in his way a little bit and basically de Sosa just flung his arm right back at him and he was, they were basically going at it. They were jawing the entire game. And he's still 17 years old, and he's talking to arguably the most intimidating shot blocker in the nation. So I would say that he he almost has the attitude I wish Azubuki would have at all times of just, I'm not going to back down. I'm bigger and better than you. And also, Silvio so, is I think, 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, six, so six, nine. if Azubuki was that sort of mentality going in, I think then you have two basically brutal big men going into this uh, tournament that Kansas has lacked for quite some time outside of Thomas Robinson, but I it's just this is going to be a stressful couple games for Kansas as we know they sometimes are um, very liable to be knocked out early on in the tournament. Um, then this this game is no easier. It is does not get any easier for the Jayhawks moving forward, and Penn is really a team that could be a handful of them early on in this uh, game. Well, I'll tell you what for all. Well, First of all, responded that I'm not worried about a Penn or a, a Seton Hall or an NC State. I don't I don't see any problems with with Kansas marching into to uh, kind of the Sweet Sixteen and Elite Eight. But one thing I also have to say from this whole conversation about the Jayhawks is we are having a much different conversation now than potentially we would have had. You know at the beginning of this weekend because coming into this Big 12 championship tournament, the question wasn't, you know, can we afford to rest Silvio, or I'm excuse me, Udoka as a, as a boogie. You know, the question wasn't, can we afford to rest him in, in, in the round of 64? It was, we need him back for this tournament at, you know, at the earliest convenience, you know, at when he's even remotely ready to go. But following this weekend... And following the breakout of the true breakout of Silvio De Sosa, I have really no concerns uh, ab- about this team without Azubuki. Just because, you know, sh- sure the shots may not be falling every night, but the way that Silvio De Sosa played this weekend, he's already a better rebounder than Yudoka Azubuki has ever been so far in his career. And 
you know, he may not have the 300-pound body to throw around, but he has much more of a feel in the post for for the game and, and for when things are happening. He's he's a great anticipator, and I was I was kind of watching back some some game highlights uh, today from from yesterday's championship game, and before shots were even taken, he was moving to where he knew the ball would be. Uh, from a rebound, and he was in the exact same exact spot that he needed to be, and that's why he was he averaged 11 rebounds a game over the over the weekend. So, I have no, if, you know, if I'm a Kansas Jayhawk fan, I don't really have any concerns uh, about having Yudoka Azubuki miss a game or two because we, you know, you have just as much of a competent uh, a big man in Silvio De Sosa that you would in Yudoka Azubuki. But that's just me. And I, I can't we we can't uh, basically go over the fact that Malik Newman was an absolute star of this team in this entire tournament. And I was thinking that moving forward, Kansas needed the play of LeGerald Vic to really take a take a step back into where he was in November almost. And Malik Newman was struggling early on then, but the fact is that if they can get him and Graham going. I don't think there is anybody that can guard this team on the perimeter, not even Penn, regardless. I don't think Penn has played the level that Kansas has. They played Villanova earlier in the season and lost by almost 30. So, yes, I think Kansas can move on to the later rounds, but the part that always gets gets me skeptical of this is I think back to a year ago with guys like Frank Mason and Josh Jackson leading that team. They still have Gerald Vick. He was getting hot into the tournament. It seems like every year going in, no matter who you see in the bracket, I always think Kansas is going to go deep into it. But there's always that one game that they run into that just the shots aren't falling and it almost turns into a mode of panic. And one thing that scares me the most is that this team, despite any of the West Virginia games, they've failed to make that signature Kansas run. As in teams in the past, if they could fall down by 10 with under 10 to go, they could slowly crawl back into the game. There's been a couple losses that not only have they ended up losing those games, the lead has been almost inflated to an almost uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically Jayhawk-type team. As we know, in the Oklahoma State game, they were down by double digits the whole game. It ended up inflating to 20-plus points. Arizona State at home, you thought they could make a run. They couldn't. They ended up losing by double digits. Washington, double digits. This team is hot right now. As we know, a year ago, the team was knocked out early in the Big 12 tournament, so they had to go into a stretch where they weren't playing for a while. They're coming blazing hot shooting-wise going into this tournament. I think that's their confidence, but as we've seen, if they can't hit the three ball and Azubuki's in foul trouble, I think DeSosa played well knowing that other guys were hitting shots and he was able to get into that play, but if Azubuki's in foul trouble and the guys are missing threes, then this team could seriously be in trouble in the early rounds of this, maybe even the second round in either Seton Hall or NC State, but they've got a really tough bracket, I think, at least second toughest next to... uh, the West, I believe it is, yes, with Gonzaga being the four there. I think that it's the second toughest bracket in all of the tournament. I definitely agree with you there, with it being one of the tougher brackets, because you've got three of the four teams in the Champions Classic in this region, in Kansas, Michigan State, and Duke. And then you throw in a team like Auburn, who struggled here the last few days losing in the SEC tournament, but they're still a very viable option for a team that could make a run, as well as Clemson, um, and honestly, as bad as Arizona State has been, if they can make it out of that first four game, they have a very good chance of, of 
trying to push into the second weekend because they would match up against TCU, and TCU's been spotty here in the last few weeks. They've got some good wins, but they they faltered down the stretch against K-State in overtime in the Big 12 tournament. They lost to K-State previously in this season. They They've... Had KU on the ropes in Allen Fieldhouse, but choked in the end. They've they've had games, but they've never had enough to really knock down many good teams outside of maybe West Virginia once. So if there's an upset there in this bracket, it comes from Arizona State, even though I just kind of talked down on them for even making this tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just goes to show you how, how random and how interesting this entire sporting event can be. Well, and that's, I mean, that's a good segue into talking about the Big 12 conference in general. Do you, do either of you think that the Big 12 was disrespected by the amount of bids that they received? Because, you know, on paper, there were nine teams that could all make a a strong case for receiving a bid. And from those nine, uh, seven of them actually, you know, are, will be dancing. And, you know, the biggest names obviously left off the list. Oklahoma State and Baylor, who was, you know, one of the first four out, uh, you know, from this tournament. You know, I I think that in years past, the Big 12 has really struggled in this tournament. Um, And looking at this right now, there's really not a Big 12 team besides Kansas I see at this point that really just posed as a really deep run threat. You know, I used to think it'd be West Virginia, but West Virginia really, really has a tough time in the early rounds. I know they were knocked out a couple years ago to Stephen F. Austin, and they were a 13 seed. Uh, but it's just you think that when when Kansas is in Big 12 play and you see all the competitive games uh, time in and time out, but it's when they play these other schools that may be hungrier than they are. As we know in the SEC Big 12 Challenge earlier this year, the SEC ended up winning that by, I think, a game. But – it's. I don't think they were disrespected at all. Anything. I think they were fortunate. I. I don't think Texas. I don't think Oklahoma were tournament teams. Uh, TCU is. I think they're a good team. I don't think they're a deep run team. They could have a very good chance of being knocked out in the first round. I think Tech and Kansas. I think K State definitely earned their spot in there. I think they were competitive all year. Um, they definitely gave. Uh, they gave Kansas a pretty good scare in the um, semifinals. Uh, without basically any of their star players. They had Dean Wade out, Barry Brown got hurt within the first possession of the game. Uh, If they can get past the first round, it'll be really, really fun to see them play Virginia, who really likes to slow the pace down, but so does Bruce Weber's Wildcats. Well, yes. so, I mean, another way that I also look at it is, you know, obviously they they didn't get all nine teams in, but for for me at least, that's that's a testament Regardless of you know everyone not getting in, that's just a testament to how impressive the Big Twelve was this year as a whole. And as Bill Self, Bill Self was talking about this uh, earlier tonight at his press conference, how this the Big Twelve is not necessarily top heavy, but it's the most uh, impressive conference in terms of depth. That there is no bad team in this conference, and and you can argue you know that's sometimes people will rip the Big East that they have these powerhouses and then you get down to the bottom conference and and it's pretty pretty poor quality basketball but for me you know looking at the big 12 I think that's just a testament that the fact that even nine teams were in the conversation uh, you know you could argue that they were the the best conference in basketball but let's just kind of you know before we wrap up this March Madness talk get a take on 
our way too early predictions. Who do you guys have in your final four? Just based off of instinct, gut reactions. Obviously, it's going to take some time for everyone to kind of actually sit down and, and walk through an entire bracket. But just based off of your gut initial reactions of bids, who do you guys have in your final four? I have Villanova. I have Kansas. I have um, North Carolina. And then I have Tennessee. Tennessee. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I do. Especially coming off of a loss today against tennis, uh, against Kentucky, where they played probably one of their worst games in the last couple of weeks. I think that it might light a fire under them. And I, I just I, I feel a run coming from the Vols. Uh, I think I'll probably get burned on most of my predictions here. But starting on the left side, I got some upsets. So I got Cincy being the team out of the South. I got Gonzaga returning to the Final Four out of the West. I think I'm going to stick with my gut here, and I'm going to say that Kansas makes it out of the Midwest. It's just my hopeful opinion here. And then I'm probably going to stick with nothing really happening out of the East and Villanova coming out there. All right, so we're all going to differ here because I have Virginia coming out of the South. I think this is by far Tony Bennett's best offensively, uh, his best team offensively, and that's always been the thing that plagued Virginia is if they did for whatever reason get down in games, they didn't have the offense to get back, but they do. So I, I love Virginia. Um, I love Xavier out of the West, Kansas Midwest, and Nova out of the East. I'm going with the, the cheap seeds. pick and all one seeds. But honestly, I mean, they're all very deserving. And for me, at least, I don't see a ton of – obviously, there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens. But by the numbers, you know, this is perhaps one of the safest fields for one seeds. And to go there, you know, out of the four one seeds, what team do you guys think is that – the highest risk for not making it that far well i gotta say it's kansas as much as it pains me to say that it doesn't w- though does it really no it, it, i okay. mean it does <laughs> because honestly this team is very good i think there's no denying that and when they're clicking on all cylinders they're one of the best teams in the country and they have every possibility to win the national championship but right now the question mark is yudoka azabuki and if he is a liability but is still in the lineup, it could really harm this team. And even if he's not in the lineup, you're relying on young guys like Mitch Lightfoot and Silvio DeSosa to really anchor you down on the interior. And if that's what you're forced to do on a night where your shots aren't falling, man, this team could be in some hot water. So that's going to be worth monitoring for me. I just want to say first how fitting that with you picking all the one seeds, I believe the last time all one seeds were in the final forwards exactly 10 years ago, in the same spot in San Antonio, and Kansas came out victorious in that one, as we all know. But I got to agree with Jackson here, and I, I think Kansas definitely, as much as this actually does pain me to say a lot, I, I Kansas is a team that is notorious for losing in those early round games. It's been the Elite Eight the last couple of years. Uh, this team, like I said earlier, has the capability of going all the way. They also have every capability of losing in the first weekend. And this is, like I said earlier, a really, really tough region to play in. But it's going to be exciting because I'm really wanting to see how far Kansas has come. And I really want them to get a shot, especially at Duke in the Elite Eight. Absolutely. Well, an exciting March, obviously, is in store for us. And first action for this tournament will tip off Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Central Time. That is the first game of the first four 
And from there, the rest of the tournament starts on Thursday. Kansas is set to tip off at uh, just just before 1 o'clock on Thursday. But we want to thank Jackson Schneider for joining us. I know he's a very, very busy man as sports director for KJHK Radio, but do appreciate his time and his elite analysis and joining <laughs> us to talk about March Madness. I think you're kind of building me up a little bit there, Jack. <laughs> but uh, definitely enjoyed being on, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. And with that, we'll move into professional sports, into the world of Major League Baseball, where the free agency frenzy is just about wrapping up. And, Jack, today we saw, again, one of the bigger signings uh, from this month in Jake Arrieta signing a three-year, $75 million deal with the Philadelphia Phillies. And perhaps uh, the last, or one of the last, Big-name arms uh, left on the market finally finds a home. And kind of compared to the other starting pitchers that we saw get signed, you know, we saw Lance Lynn go earlier this week. We've seen, uh, you know, Otani obviously uh, sign. And then kind of this this signing at least shows to me that the Philadelphia Phillies, Philadelphia Phillies want to be at least a contender for a playoff team. They want to improve. They're not set on tanking. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. They got a lot of young guys to um, uh, sort of help out with uh, Arietta, obviously, and they got Carlos Santana earlier, who signed after being with the Indians last year. Um, but it does surprise me a little bit. I didn't really see the Phillies coming out and making these moves. Uh, they have a lot of young talent, like I said earlier, but it's really just I thought they would go with a younger lineup. I know they were hurt by sticking with veterans earlier in their rebuilding process, and that really hurt them and set them back a couple years. Um, I mean, Arietta's a great, great starter for them. I think he's a great acquisition, but it is a $25 million deal per year. And uh, they got Carlos Santana, though, for cheap. But I, I really just thought they'd stick out with the younger players. I don't think they're ready yet to contend. It's not really a season to contend if you're sort of trying to be a sleeper in Major League Baseball. There's too many... Um, too many uh, tough teams in this year's league. Uh, they got the Yankees, the Red Sox. Uh, they're going to be basically taking over the American League along with the Indians, but also in the National League. You still got the Dodgers there. You got the Cubs. Uh, I, I just It seems sort of like the wrong time to make these moves if you're Philadelphia. Well, and another thing you have to look at, uh, you know, not only on the, the side of the Phillies, but if you're looking at the Chicago Cubs, I mean, you you were fortunate to get you Darvish, but now kind of moving forward, Arietta I would say was kind of the glue guy of the rotation. You know, not only for the World Series run, but just over the last couple of years to see him really blossom from you know previously being you know a good solid pitcher, but not really anything that would blow you out of the water. And then he made that jump, uh, at least for a season, to elite status. But then kind of, you know, last season took a step back again and, and really wasn't, I, I would can say, in, in the elite echelon of pitchers in Major League Baseball. So, I mean, if you're Chicago, are you are you really that sad about seeing him move on? Um, I, I think they definitely replaced him with Yu Darvish. Uh, going back to his elite year where he won 22 games, he threw 229 innings. Uh, his ERA was... Uh, sub two is 177. Uh, the following year, he had a 310 ERA, so he definitely was not as electric as he was. But then we go into last year. Uh, he won 14 games still. He had a 353 ERA, which is it's very consistent. You know, that's a that's a number 
uh, people like to look at when they're going out getting starting pitching, any guy that's consistent like that. But he also threw under 170 innings, and that's the um, least amount of innings he's, he's thrown since 2014. Uh, you know, I think the Cubs did a good job with replacing him with a guy like Darvish. I know he's coming off of a rough outing in Game 7 of the World Series against Houston. But I don't think he's a guy that you need to uh, really sweat over to losing that much. Uh, they still got John Lester to sort of help out that rotation. They got Hendricks. And then you had Darvish. And also they added uh, um, the guy from Colorado. Uh, I think it's um, Chatwood. Chatwood is his name. Uh, they really just have a, a solid rotation so far. I really don't think Arietta is a guy that they're going to lose too much sleep over um, with guys like Chatwood and Darvish, I think you really replace them well enough in that sort of matter. Well, and so kind of moving on with some of the other kind of headline free agents from this offseason, another big one, obviously for for Royals fans, was Mike Moustakas. And seeing Eric Hosmer go was definitely not um, not a pleasant thing just because of how meaningful he has been to this franchise and and uh you know the the postseason runs they've they've been able to make in the past but you know you get Mike Moustakas uh, one year six and a half million dollars and that's that's pretty cheap uh very cheap uh if we're gonna be running numbers Moustakas out of high school was given a four million dollar signing bonus to just be in the minor leagues low low a ball so he's making two and a half million more Coming off a year where he broke the home run record, hitting 38 home runs, he was selected to his second All-Star game. He played in 148 games. I know he came off having an ACL injury in 2016, but he rebounded well enough, and I don't know how teams basically just passed over him. Uh, The Yankees were a team that was in the mix. They decided to go with Brandon Drury at third base. The Mets were in the mix for a little bit. They went with Todd Frazier. I, I just, I think that, I mean, it's a blessing for Royals and me being a Royals fan. I love to see Moustakis back and at such a cheap um, payroll here. But it's it's shocking to see that a guy like Moustakis was just basically abandoned by this system, this free agent market that's been going on this entire summer. But the good thing going forward is now with the remaining free agents, they're going to have to start accepting these deals because – they're going to look at the Moustakas deal and think the longer I hold out, the more money I'm going to lose. With the exception of Arietta, we don't know how long he had that contract and offer, but I guarantee you the Phillies didn't just offer him a three-year, $75 million deal. I think that that was in the works for a couple weeks, and I think after Moustakas and basically seeing that, you know, there was rumors that he had declined a uh, three-year, $45 million deal with the Los Angeles Angels to return home, and that ended up hurting him, basically. He declined the $17.5 million qualifying offer with Kansas City to end the season, but he just wanted to test the free agent market. But I think Arietta saw that and decided, you know, this is the most money I'm going to get. I think that, you know, I need to take advantage of making $25 million a year. And for these remaining guys, it's sort of a time for the teams that uh, want to compete, um, not necessarily rebuilding or anything, but... They want to compete in their, inside the division. Uh, there's guys like Greg Holland, Alex Cobb, uh, Neil Walker still out there that you could bring back very cheap after this signing of Moustakas to really help the ball club. I know that Toronto is still looking for some players out there. They need to really compete in their division with, obviously, Boston and New York really being the 
highest caliber team in basically all of baseball. But, you know, this it worked out great for the Royals. They brought in guys like John Jay, Lucas Duda, and Moustakas were out a total of $13.5 million. And, you know, that's that's fine. That's great production out of just spending $13.5 million to be almost competitive to a sense for a season. Well, it's also interesting to note on for these deals, not only how they're going to affect the, you know, the remaining players left on the on the wire, but you also have to think about the long-term impact because obviously every season, you know, market values are going to slowly increase. We've seen that in the NFL, quarterback salaries are just getting higher and higher and they're getting to the point that it's ridiculous. But the way I also see it and I also kind of look at it is to have these kind of cheap deals this season I think teams are also kind of being cognizant that next season, next summer, or not next summer, next offseason, is potentially one of the strongest free agent classes in all of Major League Baseball history ever. Because I'm looking at the list of potential free agents next season, and I'll just leave, you know, in no particular order, these are some of the some of the big names that will be potentially available for teams uh, to bid on next season. Josh Donaldson, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Charlie Blackman, Dallas Keuchel, Daniel Murphy, Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, right there, there's like six, eight stars that are all going to warrant probably upwards of, you know, $15, 20000000 million a year at the, at the minimum. So I, I think it's a good thing for baseball, honestly, the way I see it. Because if you were to tell me that Jake Arrieta – would be asking for $40 million a year or something, you know, something ridiculous. You know, if he really wanted to get it paid, you know, like a Clayton Kershaw or like a Max Scherzer or something like that. If Jake Arrieta, who's not even an elite pitcher, wanted that kind of money, I would I would be scared to see how desperate teams would act reflexively next year. But, I mean, that's, that's still a far ways out. Um, but, you know, and another cheap deal that we saw was Lance Lynn, uh, the Minnesota Twins uh, signed the former St. Louis Cardinal to a one-year, $12 million deal this weekend. And I am a Minnesota Twins fan, so for me, I am as happy as can be because I just got a quality starting pitcher for, I wouldn't call it you know, the, the cheapest amount, but I mean, for the rate that starting pitching is going. I mean, he's not significantly... You know, he's not a significantly worse pitcher than, you know, most teams would, you know, ask for. And at, at $12 million uh, to be, for at least for the Minnesota Twins, a top three pitcher in the rotation, that is, I mean, that's that's phenomenal. And not only is this a $12 million deal, it's, it's a short deal, so they're not stuck with him if for whatever reason, you know, he decides to have a career horrible season. But but another thing I also look at. Sorry, I don't didn't want to jump you there. But uh, I'll throw out two numbers for you, Jack. And if you can guess these two pitchers, one pitcher got a or one pitcher has a career ERA of three point five seven, and just got three years, seventy five million dollars. You can guess that's Jake Arrieta. Exactly. Lance Lynn's career ERA three point four three. Now, I'm not trying to say that Lance Lynn is an all-star caliber pitcher. I don't know if he's that or ever going to be. And I'm not saying he's going to be the ace of a rotation. 
But the Twins just got a pitcher with, you know, over a course of time, law of averages, a better pitcher for about half the money. And, you know, people love to say, well, Lance Lynn, he's not a strikeout guy. You know, he doesn't blow guys away. He gets outs. And at the end of the day, I don't really care how a guy is going about doing that as long as he's getting those outs and, and, and that's what he's done. And sure, he's had a history of injuries and sure, you know, he's some had some inconsistencies, but give me a guy with a sub 3-5 ERA any day of the week. Well, yeah, I was just basically going to say that going off of last year, Lance Lynn had a lower ERA. He pitched more innings than Jake Arrieta. Uh, he's about one... Uh, 1.3 strikeouts less per nine than Arietta. Uh, but I, I really do like this deal for the Twins. Uh, they they really needed to replace Irvin Santana, who will be out for a couple months with his finger surgery that he got earlier before spring. Um, they were really looking for a guy to be that leader in the rotation early on in the season because, as we know, the Twins are coming off a very successful season when many people wrote them off to be still in the rebuilding mode but you know they were for a while thinking that Berrios was going to be the guy that was going to be the ace of the staff to start the season they still got young guys like Mejia in there they'll have Kyle Gibson coming back but Lance Lynn is a really really great acquisition by them like you said it can't really hurt them if he is terrible because the worst that can happen is the twins don't make the playoffs and they still have a young enough core group of talent that they can make it back there within the next couple of years but you know Comparing the numbers there, I mean, obviously Jake Arrieta has more electric stuff than Lance Lynn, but, you know, if he's not striking out everybody, as long as he's getting outs, and Lance Lynn was clearly able to do that in St. Louis a year ago, it's it's just the right move they needed to make. They seemed like they were being a little bit hesitant to jump the gun with guys. They were kind of testing the free agent market, but they've gone out and gotten Logan Morrison and Lance Lynn in the past couple of weeks, and they're starting to make noise and they want to prove they can contend for the AL Central title with Cleveland. And, you know, I, I just think it's a great move for them moving forward. Uh, Lance Lynn is a terrific guy. He really can rack up the innings. Uh, he's coming off a season where he didn't even pitch in 2016. He still was able to log 186 innings and post a sub-4. Anytime you can post a sub-4 after coming off a season-ending injury the year before, that's great. Well, and I think one of the biggest things also that Twins fans appreciate is for the longest, longest time, they had a general manager by the name of Terry Ryan. And Mr. Terry Ryan, for whatever reason, never really believed in making big splashes in the free agent market. He was never one to go out and try to get a big-name guy. And while Minnesota really didn't have, you know, any headline banner, you know, top five free agent acquisitions, they slowly but surely kind of revamped their whole pitching staff, which was, you know, the kind of the, the biggest weakness uh, on that team because – you know, a season ago they had Bartolo Colon in their in their pitching rotation. Now, you know they're they're entering the 2018 season with uh, you know Jose Brios, Lance Lynn, Jake Odorizzi, and just a lot uh, more solid uh, of a rotation moving forward. But and then another team that was able to kind of retain some in-house talent, uh, the Colorado Rockies, also were able to secure. Carlos Gonzalez cargo for one year and eight million dollars and when I first saw that I, I really didn't know how to react to that because you know he wasn't impressive last year and I, I think we can all agree that he's he's past his prime 
in his really true mashing days. But for $8 million, you know, on a short contract, when they're still trying to kind of patch up their outfield around Charlie Blackman, I mean, I, I don't think it's the worst deal because they still have Gerardo Parra. They'll have a healthy David Dahl back, who I'm very excited about. And then, you know, Ian Desmond, his you know, kind of flexibility to play in the outfield or at, at first base kind of kind of solidifies their their outfield and and makes them again another one of the best offensive teams in baseball. Well, I I think that Gonzalez the only place he could go back to was Colorado. I think many teams were scared away by his his numbers away from Coors Field uh, when he would hit in Colorado. He had a three twenty three average. Um, he didn't really maintain the power numbers that he previously had. He only had eight home runs there, but away from there, um, he only batted 203 and had six home runs um, away from Coors Field. And he also struggled horribly against left-handed pitching. And, you know, he's getting up there in age two. It just didn't make much sense for someone to really take a chance on him moving forward as their everyday starting right fielder. Um, but, it's it these are going to be the guys that teams can take advantage of i mean he's still got some pop he's still a, a valuable piece to you know some of the lesser talented teams um you know I, I think the twins certainly could have been in the running for him uh, a couple weeks back but you know it, this this is the time that those players and teams will be able to take advantage of the market i mean carlos gonzalez isn't coming off his greatest year and he's still going to make millions of dollars we don't even know if he will be a starter. He could be playing off the bench. As we know, in the National League, there is no DH, so he's going to have to fight for an everyday spot in right field. But uh, it's just going to be interesting to see moving forward how many players like Cargo can land deals like that, whether that be back with their ball club. I think it's almost a very identical situation to Mike Moustakas returning to Kansas City. Uh, Mike Moustakas obviously had a much better 2017 than Cargo did, but, you know, it's it's – it's the time is now for those players to start jumping on those deals before they're going to be unemployed past spring training. Absolutely. Well, we still have still have about two weeks um, before I think teams will kind of really start to finalize, uh, you know, the rosters heading into opening day. But uh, you know, most of the big names have kind of come and gone, and I mean, for the most part, nothing has really surprised. I don't. I mean, nothing's really kind of blown me out of surprise other than you know the Phillies buy into the fact that they trust their young guys uh to to make a legitimate team yeah there I mean there just hasn't been much there hasn't been a lot of um names that have gone to teams that we really just didn't see coming other than Stanton obviously being traded right as the offseason began but we all knew the Marlins were heading in that direction and they, Derek Jeter said that he wanted to start dumping a lot of the salary off and they wanted to just completely tear it all down and we knew going in the Royals were probably not going to return many of their players and you know Hosmer signing with the Padres may have been a little bit of a shock but the Royals didn't really want to use the money on him and you know other than that you know they kind of ended up on teams that we all suspected other than obviously you said the Phillies making some noise with this free agent market but it just it it hasn't been to what many had expected of this 2017-2018 offseason and I don't think I mean I think the highest paid player as we speak today was been Eric Hosmer and I don't think anybody saw that 
um, going into 2018 that Hosmer would land the biggest deal, and especially with the San Diego Padres. So, you know, I'm excited for the season to start. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, one, the Yankees perform with their stacked lineup, how teams perform against them, how teams like the Royals and Twins will shake up in the AO Central. I think it's going to be a really great 2018, and I'm excited to see how these players perform under big contracts for maybe the first time in their career. Well, speaking of trades, kind of shifting gears here, I don't know if anyone had a big of a week as the Cleveland Browns. And, uh, I mean, we're, we'll, we'll dive into these really quickly, but just off, just off the bat, uh, General Manager John Dorsey, formerly of the Kansas City Chiefs, made three absolute bombshell deals for the Browns. And if you would have told me last week that today – whatever day you know we're looking at March 12th that we'd be looking at a Cleveland Browns roster that will potentially win more than just a game or two in a season I would have called you crazy but here we are and now they have not only assets they have weapons legitimate weapons on their team and we have not even gotten to the NFL draft yet yeah, I mean it's it's obviously any way you can make a move like that after an 0 16 season, that's that's good for Cleveland fans. But um the more I looked into that deal, uh, especially with the Bills, the Bills clearly did not want to move forward with Tyrod Taylor. Not at all. The the interesting part of it though is Cleveland almost seemed like they were done trying to take chances on drafting quarterbacks. Uh there's a decent uh outlook on this year's draft at the quarterback position but they wanted to find a guy that was sort of more established he was more seasoned and Tyrod Taylor is a great dual threat quarterback he is a little bit overpaid in my opinion so the Bills kind of dumped that contract over to Cleveland but you know I I can fully guarantee they're going to win more than zero games this year and obviously they'll get Jarvis Landry Um, they also got Randall from the Packers. Uh, I don't understand the deal from the Packers side. I mean, Kaiser had 11 touchdowns, 21 intercept, inter, 21 interceptions a year ago. Uh, but if you're a Cleveland fan, you got to be excited. It's it's something that they're wanting to win games. Clearly, I think Dorsey's a great GM. He did good things in Kansas City before they gave him the boot. But I, you, the only thing you can say to this is that Cleveland is going to try to at least compete in 2018. Um, they've so far have almost taken an upgrade in the mainly important positions that they lacked heavily in in 2017. Well, so just to kind of recap, in case for whatever reason you were under a rock the past week and, and missed these past few trades. So earlier this week, the Cleveland Browns traded a 2018 fourth rounder and a 2019 seventh rounder to pick up Jarvis Landry, considered one of probably one of the elite you know, short yardage, pass catching, move the change, wide receivers in the NFL. And then they went out and they traded for uh, Deshaun Kaiser. Or I'm sorry, they traded away Deshaun Kaiser, a fourth rounder and a fifth rounder this year for Demaris Randall, and then just basically moved up in the draft. And then obviously, you know, the, the, the biggest trade was Tyrod Taylor, getting Tyrod Taylor for another third rounder. But Here's what I'm going to put out, Jack, and you tell me if, if you uh, you if you hate this opinion. But the way I see it right now, so Cleveland still has the first and the fourth overall pick in this draft. But they, they just traded for Tyrod Taylor. So, I mean, as you said, 
it, it appears that they are past the point of throwing a dart at a rookie quarterback and expecting him to win with no team built around him because that's what's happened in Cleveland the last few years. They've they've tried to put a kind of a, a makeshift team together and, and just kind of slap a rookie quarterback in there and say, go win us games. And that's just not the recipe for success 99% of the time. But the way I see it is, if I'm the Cleveland Browns, I now have Tyrod Taylor. For me, he's nothing more than a stopgap quarterback. He's not my QB of the future. But I don't really know if you dr- want to draft Josh Rosen or Sam Darnold or someone of that nature with the number one pick. I don't think you do draft a quarterback number one, but I do think you draft a quarterback fourth overall. I think you use that fourth pick, and the guy I think they need to go out and get is Lamar Jackson. He's almost he's almost identical in the way Tyrod Taylor plays. What Cleveland has failed to do in the previous years is, like you have said, they have thrown out a younger quarterback with almost no weapons around him. What this will do is Tyrod Taylor can bring around sort of a winning culture to an extent in Cleveland. I'm not saying they're going to go out and make the playoffs, but if they win six, seven games, that's better than Cleveland's had in quite some time. I think there was a stat where in the past – I think it was three seasons or so. They've won a total of five, maybe five or six games, roughly. Don't know the exact math on that, but they've won five or six, roughly. If Cleveland can go out this season alone and win five games, then Cleveland fans, they're already they're already good fans. I'll say it's a good sports town. Um, then they're sort of building this culture around. And if they're still 5-11, and 11, they'll still get a pick higher up in the draft. They can go out and get more younger guys. Um but then you start to season Lamar Jackson under Tyrod Taylor, the similar guy. Tyrod Taylor knows how to run an offense. Tyrod Taylor wasn't drafted super high out of uh, out of college. But, you know, they're very, very similar quarterbacks. I think they can use this time perfectly to go out and draft. Sort of, they could go out and get a weapon, number one overall, whether it be a running back or a wide receiver. But, you know, they could also go with a lineman like the Chiefs did with Eric Fisher. But I think fourth overall... They should probably take Lamar Jackson because I think he's the only quarterback in that draft that would work really well under the coaching of Tyrod Taylor. So I'll pose this question for you. Riddle me this. Because you're assuming because they went out and traded for Tyrod Taylor, they want that style of offense and they want to make that work and make that their game. But I'll play devil's advocate here. Personally, I well also you kind of my personal view. Personally, the only reason why I think they chose Tyrod Taylor to be that stopgap guy is just because of kind of the opportunity and the timeliness. Because obviously he was not happy in Buffalo. Uh, the Bills were not happy with Tyrod Taylor. You know, obviously they benched him for several games last season, and he had there was every indication that he would be on his way out. But do you honestly believe that Tyrod Taylor? And that, you know, his offensive skill set is, is the one that they wanted to kind of build around. Because when I look at Tyrod Taylor, he's got, a, you know, one of the strongest arms of any starting quarterback in the NFL. But I really don't think he's that good of a quarterback. And for me, that kind of gadget-type quarterback is just not something that's really shown itself to be the most successful in the modern-day NFL. And I'm not I'm not saying that. You know, because I, you know, I'm not in the front office of the Cleveland Browns organization. I can't tell if, if that's their ideology. But the the way I see it is, also, if you're going to pick a quarterback at number four, there's 
going to be better quarterbacks, at least in 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 the eyes of most of the NFL teams. There's going to be other quarterbacks still left on the board higher than Lamar Jackson. So would you consider trading down at that point a few picks? Because, I mean, the way I see it shaking out, if I'm Cleveland, I'm taking Saquon Barkley number one. He's a franchise running back. He's the next... So he's the second coming of like an Adrian Peterson level. He's a game changer. You stick him with any quarterback, and you're going to have a successful offense. But I don't really see anyone else taking a quarterback before pick number four. And that's very true as well. And as we know, I'm going to point out a little interesting fact here. The Kansas City Chiefs finished till the 2012 season at 2-14. and 14. They then went out and hired the Green Bay Packers general manager, John Dorsey. John Dorsey then proceeded to trade for a guy that was given up on by a franchise in San Francisco. Alex Smith was replaced by Colin Kaepernick. Alex Smith was a conservative quarterback. He didn't gun it down the field, but he didn't turn the ball over. In this scenario, John Dorsey is now the general manager of the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns are coming off an 0-16 season. The Buffalo Bills have given up on a quarterback like Tyrod Taylor, who doesn't gun the ball down the field. And he's very conservative. Now, he is in Cleveland. Now, say what you want about Cleveland, how that's where quarterbacks go to die. <laughs> but, if you surround him with the right players, and I, I think that it very well could be that Tyrod Taylor could be their quarterback moving forward, and they could trade for even more talent around him to compete now. What the Chiefs did in 2013 is they went to the playoffs. They went 11-5 and and lost the heartbreaking wild card loss to the Indianapolis Colts, but still it was a great season. They were the number one overall pick, and the Cleveland Browns number number one overall pick, but they also could surround themselves with the talent that they needed. Maybe they don't get Lamar Jackson number four overall. Maybe they do get Saquon Barkley number one overall, and maybe they go with a lineman fourth overall. They're going to make those moves, in my opinion, that help them not only now, but can help them down the road. If Lamar Jackson is still there, in the second round or the third round possibly, I don't think he'll fall that far, then maybe take a chance on him. But, you know, I'd like to see them maybe move towards a younger quarterback after with some seasoning. But if we're going to be honest here, if the Browns want to trade those picks, they could be moving in the same direction the Chiefs were trying to move with John Dorsey in 2013. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I actually do like the points that you brought up. And uh, I think Cleveland just, I mean – Pretty much for the 2018 NFL draft, the world is Cleveland's oyster because they pretty much have the power. They have the the draft picks in in positioning to kind of do whatever they please at the mercy of pretty much anyone else. Because obviously the number one pick, I don't I don't envision them trading that. If they trade out of the first pick again to to move down and, and pick another bus, I, th- I think the city of Cleveland will burn down. But you know, at least the way I saw it shaking up, Browns not going with the quarterback at one. Uh, I think almost every indication shows Josh Rosen going to New York. They love him. They love his winning mentality, kind of his character, his kind of charisma. But then, you know, you also look at Indianapolis, who plan on sticking with Andrew Luck. They can potentially trade out. And then Cleveland even... If they don't decide to take, you know, someone like Lamar Jackson or anyone, the Denver Broncos and New York Jets right behind them also are in positions where currently do not have an answer at quarterback yet. And I know we haven't gotten through free agency yet. And all of this is going to definitely depend on kind of where Kirk Cousins, Case Keenum, Teddy Bridgewater, et cetera, kind of shake out. But 
I just have to say that I think Cleveland pretty much, barring a major meltdown, owns this draft even before it begins because of just they have so many. They still have a, a plethora of picks to work with, and they just have every opportunity to make things happen in this draft. But kind of moving on from from Cleveland a little bit too, it's also important to kind of cover both the signings and you know other moves that have kind of been happening because the biggest moves or you know earlier this month were Marcus Peters moving to LA and you know also Aqib Talib moving to the Rams and I'll kind of walk through this with you Jack outside of the 49ers in the NFC West the defensive backs are now on each team respectively with LA, Marcus Peters, Akib Talib, uh, you know, they got Tremaine Johnson, the Seattle Seahawks, Earl, Tons- Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, the Cardinals have Patrick Peterson and Tyron Matthew. Who do those three teams have to f- face as a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers? A Mr. Jimmy Garoppolo. So I'm not going to go out there and say that he's next year's MVP, but I will say that teams are already recognizing how dang good that kid is. And. Not to say that they're they're kind of building their teams around just defending him because obviously there's going to be 14 other games that they play in the season. But man alive, from what he flashed at the end of last season and how teams are already kind of making adjustments to get their rosters acclimated and ready for another Tom Brady-esque talent, I mean, it's, it's evident that the NFC West is not only going to be one of the strongest uh, conferences or divisions in football but they're going to be one of the most fun to watch by far well I think what's also really interesting is that we're going to see a massive change in that division over what's been consistent over the last couple years as we all know the Seattle Seahawks have been one of the top contenders in the NFL but what we've noticed over this last season and even this offseason is there is a clear line where this team is divided between their ownership and players with them Richard Sherman was just cut, one of the best cornerbacks in football over the last couple of years. Earl Thomas ran over to the Cowboys locker room after their game and said, hey, hit me up sometime. That's something that didn't go over well with a lot of the Seahawks players. They obviously got rid of Bennett earlier this week. They traded him to Philadelphia. From their quote of their ownership, they wanted to make the locker room a little bit quieter. And as we all know, coming off of that season a year ago, that's one of the last things you want to do is cause issues between ownership and players. And not only did they have issues with some players on their actual team, now they have problems with their ownership. And with their ownership now cutting players that are fan favorites by many of the Seattle faithful, now you have problems with the fans and the ownership. So there is a whole mess that could be potentially happening in Seattle for this upcoming season. But, yeah, I mean, everybody but Seattle has really made a move towards sort of trying to corral this up-and-coming quarterback in Garoppolo. I think the Rams will have the best defense in the NFL. They definitely will have the most uh, charismatic, if you would say, cornerback duo with Aqib Tlaib getting in multiple fights with Crabtree. And we all know what Marcus Peart is capable of. I think it's going to be a fun team to watch. I think that team is going to have a lot of swagger. I think they're going to be able to go out there and basically intimidate quarterbacks. I know that on NFL Network, uh, they were asking Marcus Peters about the game in Mexico City between the Chiefs and the Rams, and all he said he expects from that game is turnovers and that how rookie quarterback Patrick Mahomes knew how to throw him 
throw him the football in practice. So already a little bit of a um, a grudge match, almost you could say, uh, between those teams brewing. But that team is going to have a lot of um, well, just swagger going into this season. They 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 know they have a ton of confidence. They know that they're going to be better than you. They want to take the ball away. They have many guys that are capable of taking the ball away. But I think it's going to be a really really fun league and a very fun division to watch. Well, and I think next season, I mean, obviously this is quite a ways away and a lot can happen from now until, you know, training camp start. But, you know, I'm also looking at the teams at the bottom of the league and I'm just seeing that a lot of these teams are just, you know, one or two pieces away from really flipping the switch and, you know, kind of making themselves go from being 6-10 and 10 to 10-6 and six, just like that. Because Cleveland, obviously all the tools they've already added, you know, another season or two, and, you know, developing an, a, a good quarterback, and, and they're potentially a playoff team. The Houston Texans were very unlucky with losing to Sean Watson. They're a playoff team with Deshaun Watson. And then teams like the New York Jets, Denver Broncos, uh, the Giants, teams like that are, you know, for the most part, a good quarterback away from bouncing back and being in the playoff picture because, that you know, we know that the quarterback position pretty much fuels success in the NFL and for most of these teams they have the opportunity now whether it be in the draft you know one of the strongest quarterback drafts in recent memory or you know free agency to kind of get back on track in that way and I completely agree with you but I will say that there is one team to me that stands out that is in deep trouble going forward not Minnesota I'm gonna go and it's a non-biased opinion but I definitely think the Denver Broncos are in serious, serious trouble. Care to explain? I think that, one, they have banked this entire offseason on trying to go after Kirk Cousins. Okay, they've definitely tried to move away from Trevor Simeon. It didn't work out. They tried to move away from Paxton Lynch. He never really panned out, even though he's still young, but I definitely don't think he's the quarterback the Denver Broncos moving forward. If they decide to draft a quarterback and start him day one, which John Elway is not really prone to do. As we all know, Tim Tebow won them a playoff game. He's gone the next year. They got Peyton Manning. Um, they decided to go with Trevor Simeon. Doesn't work out. So he's probably not really wanting to move forward with a younger quarterback. If they can't land Cousins, he's only going to be forced to draft a quarterback and start him day one. I don't think. I think he's completely given up on Simeon. If he wants to draft a quarterback and play Simeon again, I think there will be an uproar in Denver. As we all know, they're not prone to losing. They're supposed to be the AFC West champions most years. Unlike you know, the Chiefs have sort of risen as that team to start taking that crown over and over again in these last couple of years. But Denver, to me, after losing Tlaib, uh, that defense is getting weaker. And the offense, as we all know, was basically a travesty to watch all season long. They couldn't do anything. Their quarterback issues jumped back and forth between Simeon and Lynch. Uh, they need to make a move soon if they want to compete. And if they're not going to go out and sign Cousins, which there's many teams in the running for Kirk Cousins right now, and if they can't land him, they're only going to be forced to be moving towards drafting someone and just taking losses for a couple years moving forward. Well, and, and you brought up a good point. And not only is their offense kind of digressing, but they're getting old. This whole entire team is getting older. Exactly. And I, I think a lot of people are coming to the realization that there is a finite window in place for this franchise before they pretty much need to hit the refresh button because the team that 
you know, the defense that carried them to the Super Bowl, um, even, you know, with a with a banged up and kind of, you know, out of place Peyton Manning, that defense is now three, four, you know, three to four years older. And, you know, all these pieces that were, you know, have been perennial, all pro, you know, pro bowlers, all pros their entire career are now 30, 32, and 34 years old. So, I mean, you're exactly correct. And Denver, one of one of the biggest teams in, in, in danger of pretty much sliding off of a slippery slope in the NFL. Well, I I mean, just if, if I'm – if I'm looking at the AL West now, the teams that stand out to me, um, one, if you're the Oakland Raiders, the time is now to capitalize. If you're the Los Angeles Chargers, almost said San Diego, if you're the Los Angeles Chargers, the time is now to capitalize. The Chiefs are down, the Broncos are down, and it could basically be run by going to be the future Las Vegas Raiders. But, I mean, the Chiefs are at a scramble right now. They're kind of up in the air of what they're really trying to do. Denver hasn't done anything this entire offseason. Uh, if you get a healthy Derek Carr in Oakland, and if Phillip Rivers can continue his success, I mean, I think basically the Chargers were only held out of the playoffs by the Chiefs last year. I mean, they swept them, and their two games played, and, you know, that was basically what hurt their chances. Same with Oakland, but uh, Derek Carr is kind of coming off a you know horrific leg injury that he suffered and just didn't have the same sort of season he had the year prior, but... I mean, if, if I'm them, I'm going out, I'm making moves, I'm making deals in this draft, I'm trading my draft picks to get guys that are ready now. I think they need to go out and be the team of the West right now because the division leaders of the Chiefs and the Broncos are down right now, and they need to strike and basically kick them while they're down. Uh, well, all good points, and uh, I mean, at least I think it's safe to say that March is one of the, if not the single most entertaining month in sports besides March Madness, obviously with MLB kind of offseason wrapping up and then NFL free agency just a week away. But that will just about do it from the KJHK studio, the first ever edition of the Down the Line podcast. And if you are tuning in this week, you're witnessing history, but we will have more elite analysis for you uh, in the weeks to come. You can find us on Twitter, Jack Johnson. Found at JohnnyJ underscore 15, myself at underscore Jack Nadeau. Until next time, stay golden.